It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. The Washington Huskies have officially named Michael Penix Jr. their starter ahead of the 2022 season. Does that change the outlook for Washington at all in year one under Kalen DeBoer? And ESPN has released some power rankings and some FPI projections for uh, the Pac-12. And I have some questions. Let's go. Our Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pack 12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin, D1 play-by-play broadcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen or your first view if you're watching on YouTube of the day, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your number one source to stay up to date with the Conference of Champions, however long this conference exists uh, anymore in the future. Like, comment, subscribe wherever you're listening to or watching the show. Thank you to everyone out there who has done so already. Today's show is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, the official recruiting sponsor across the Locked On College Network. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash college. Terms and conditions apply. And I don't know if such a warning label is needed when I bring on Carter Baines, senior your editor and writer at beaverblitz.com. But uh, in texting with him the other day, he said he had some hot takes coming in. So maybe he does need a, a warning label. So Carter, let's just jump right in and, and go to the news in the Pac-12 coming out of Seattle. And that's uh, a little bit of something that was expected. I, I think you bring in a guy like Michael Penix typically to be the starter, even with Dylan Morris and Sam Heward there. Um, but what would you make of the news of Kalen DeBoer uh, reuniting with, with Michael Penix officially now as his starting quarterback going into this year? Well, I think that last little tidbit you dropped there, the fact that it's, you know, they're reuniting. I think that's probably a big reason why he did end up winning the job. Uh, oftentimes, you know, you see these power five to power five transfers and you think, okay, well, the only reason this guy would leave a a pretty comfortable job at a power five school is because he knows that he's going to be a starter elsewhere. And oftentimes that is the case. Uh, So, you know, I don't necessarily know that this quarterback competition was a a formality uh, or the announcement was a, a formality. I think he probably did have to beat out some of those other guys in the room, but when you're reuniting with your former offensive coordinator, you know, somebody who you had a lot of success with, you're moving from a power five school to another power five school. I think Penix probably fully expected to win the job. And uh, I think it would, it would be reasonable to say that uh, he was probably a front runner, if not the front runner throughout camp. Um, you know, of, of course I'm not following Husky fall camp as, as in depth as I'm following Oregon States on the, on the day to day, but uh, I, I imagine he it, it probably doesn't come as a huge surprise to those uh, around the program that that Penix got the job. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a major surprise. I'm sure there are some Washington fans out there who are you know now asking the question that that I want to pose to you, Carter, and that's so what what's the deal with Sam Heward? I mean, that's the highest rated quarterback commit in school history, and he's you know a, a five star. He's got all the physical tools and. Only started one game last year in what was just a, a discombobulated mess with, with Jimmy Lake, and now they've reset at head coach. 
Do you think it impacts Heward's future at all, knowing that Penix is going to be the starter for this season? And do you think he's looking at it going, boy, am I ever going to be the starter here? Uh, my one question is, so Michael Penix has one year of eligibility, correct? Or does he have two? He should, he should have one. Cause he's got okay. four years of, uh, worth of stats. So I believe he can just play for one. Sure. Okay. In that case, I think it's just a development year for, you know, for those other guys in the room, uh, you know, a, a one-time starter coming in, we've seen it in college football before. And I, I think if a guy comes in with more eligibility than that, you have to worry about the the potential for transfer. But, you know, most guys, I think if they're early on in their career and they still see a path to playing time later on, even in today's day and day and age and, you know, with the transfer portal and whatnot, um, there's, you know, there's reason to stick it out. That being said, my main takeaway when, when I heard this news was, it is really interesting that a guy can come in, you know, with an average track record. I know he had he had one really good year where he he took Indiana to a level that it, it you know forever. But outside of that, you know, you look at his numbers and it, it's nothing spectacular. A guy like that can come in and and win the job when you've got incredible recruiting history at, at Washington at this position. You mentioned Heward, Dylan Morris. Uh, of course, has been a starter and, and wasn't spectacular, but, you know, another very highly rated recruit. This goes all the way back to Jake Browning. Washington has recruited the quarterback position so well that it is really surprising to me that here we are in 2022 talking about Michael Penix Jr. transferring in and, and winning this job when you've got this backlog of talent going back, you know, five, seven years, uh, and, and none of those guys have really stuck. You think all the way back to to Jake Locker too. Keith Price had a, mm-hmm. a solid career, won a lot of games. Uh, I mean, he had a seven and six Sark as his head coach, but um, he he was certainly solid. I I was also I, I think it's very commonplace now in in college football. I see the same thing at, at Oregon, right, with Bo Nix. Like, well, these guys are here, but when the new staff comes in. I think what they're looking for is stability and consistency. And even mm-hmm. though the ceiling with Penix, who's not an amazing athlete, who's had a lot of injuries and doesn't have a huge arm, he's a pretty accurate thrower of the football when he's able to, to drop it in. His completion percentage has never been super high, but it's never been higher than when he had Kalen DeBoers' as offensive coordinator. That's certainly the upside there. But I think that, you know, even if there's not as high of a ceiling as you might have with Sam Heward at, at quarterback... I think what these coaching staffs are seeing by bringing in these transfers in their first year is the floor is higher. And I think that's true because we've seen Michael Penix win football games at his program in Indiana where it's hard to win. They have they've never had. I was looking this up the other day. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I was looking at their seasons on Wikipedia. They have not had a 10 win season ever. They've never won 10 games. That is astonishing when you consider the schools that that have had at least a couple 10 win seasons here in the Arizona has done it multiple times Oregon State did it Oregon State has done it Cal has done it multiple times so he was at a program and that's maybe part of the upside as well for for Husky fans is Washington historically is a better program than than Indiana right and so he's got more to work with I think than, than what he had when he was with the Hoosiers. I, I think that's a potential positive of it. Um, and, and so I think for the coaching staff, they look at it and go, 
look, he might not, he's not going to be our guy of the future. He doesn't have the eligibility, but he can help us establish a winning culture because he has won games before. They didn't win a lot in, in 2021, but they were 6-1 and one in the shortened 2020 year. They won eight games the year before. Those are things that Indiana doesn't typically do. So I think that's what DeBoer and the staff are, are seeing here by bringing him in and naming him the starter. It makes sense. And I, I think back to, obviously, you know, covering Oregon State throughout this rebuild. Um, I, I've been around the, the program enough to see kind of how it's approached the rebuilding process at the quarterback position. And the way it started was, all right, let's bring in a couple of transfers, Tristan Jebbia, Jake Luton. Uh, and, and the key to that is you're bringing in guys who have playing experience. You're not taking a risk. Uh, you know, you're not taking a flyer on somebody who has potential. It's somebody who's played before and, you know, has produced at either the Juco level or, you know, has been a, a highly rated recruit who went to Nebraska, you know, one of those guys who you pretty much know what you're going to get and you build around that. And I think that is, I think it's a solid approach to a rebuild because if you know what you're getting from, you know, easily the most important position on the field, then you can kind of focus on, you know, building around that. And I think again, to your point of it raises the floor. That's exactly why you, why you take this route. Um, You know, the, the ceiling might not be, as high as, as it could be if you got, you know, Sam Heward's potential, but at the same time, you know, Sam Heward doesn't have a full season of starting experience. He's young, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to get out of him. And, you know, if he doesn't live up to that potential up to that hype, you could be looking at a worse season than what you're going to get out of Penix. So I, I do think, you know, building, building up from a higher floor uh, is, is what makes this approach attractive. And I think that's why to your point about, Bo Nix at Oregon, I, I think that's why it makes sense for Bo Nix is a good quarterback. He has been a starting quarterback in the SEC, and you know that he's not going to cost you games. He might not win you a ton of games, but you know, you're know you not going to bring him in and, and go six and six. There's more to get to with this quarterback situation up in uh, Seattle with the Huskies. But as you gear up for fall, you need the right people on your team to help your small business fire on all cylinders. LinkedIn Jobs is here to make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 810 million people. Then add your job in a purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire nearly 40 million people every week visit linkedin who are looking for jobs post your job for free at linkedin.com slash locked on college that's linkedin.com slash locked on college terms and conditions apply Thanks again for making Locked On Pac-12 your first listen every day or your first view if you're watching on YouTube. The Ultimate College Football Preview is here. A seven-episode preview with college experts, local team experts, and Odyssey College Football insiders. It's everything you need to be ready for the college football season in one spot. Search for the Ultimate College Football Preview on your Odyssey app, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So continuing along here with Carter Baines, senior writer and editor at uh, BeaverBlitz.com, a a few more thoughts on the Washington quarterback room. I'm not as high on the Huskies as some in the Washington fan base are, and they've uh, made no bones about letting me know that, which is like, all good. I'm here for it. One of us will take an L at the end of the year. We'll see. But one thing that I'm factoring into my season prediction of Washington repeating their record from last year is that Michael Penix 
perhaps the biggest drawback with him is he's never been healthy. He has been injured all four years that he has played college football. If you told me right now that Penix was going to play 12 games, I'd probably put Washington at six and six. But I don't foresee that happening. Not rooting for it to not happen, but I don't foresee him playing 12 games because it's never happened before. And anytime you have quarterback turnover, it's just a tough place to be. And also worthy of note, Carter, from what we've read and seen right now, it appears that Dylan Morris is ahead of Sam Heward in in the quarterback de- quarterback depth chart. And I'm not a big Dylan Morris fan either because we saw him last year and, you know, he had some moments, but he also had a lot of head-scratching throws. Now his offensive coordinator was John Donovan for a while, and that guy never, never should have been hired. I, I think Washington fans will agree with me on that. But... That's part of the concern that I have bringing in Penix and making him your guy is at some point you're probably going to have to play either Dylan Morris, who has a very low ceiling, or Sam Heward, who still it appears is not ready to be a full-time starter, and that's going to make life tougher. So to my point about younger guys sticking around for a while, even though transfers are coming in and, and taking the job they are hoping for, I think a lot of the reason that those guys do oftentimes stick around is they see that they're one injury away from being the guy, you know, or they're a couple of bad games away from getting a shot. And at Washington, it it very much could be the case because as you mentioned, I mean, Michael Penix has not played a full season in what uh, did he play the full 2019 season? No, I, no, I don't, I don't believe he did. Yeah. So, so I don't even know if he's played a full season as a starter. He he hasn't, he's been, he's been hurt in one way or another every year and he's coming off of another injury. Right. So I think Dylan Morris and, and Sam Hewitt, you know, obviously they're not rooting for the guy to get hurt, but they see, you know, that they are one injury away from, from being the guy. And if, if we're talking about Dylan Morris in particular, I think I, I, I'm interested to see what he could do with, a better with a, a better coordinator, a more offensive minded staff, because I do wonder how much of his inconsistency and and that low ceiling that you mentioned was yeah. a product of just being in a system yeah, that really didn't know what it yeah. was doing. Yeah, um, that's because true. this is a guy who, of course, came to Washington as a, you know, a highly touted prospect out of high school. And, you know, it clearly has the ability to it's to make some plays. It's just, the consistency is is where the issues arose, and I think that can oftentimes be a product of a system. Um, you know, when it comes to, to to raw ability and and talent, guys rarely lose that. It's just a matter of do the coaches know how to use it and and put him in positions to be successful and use it. And so I'm interested. You know, let's let's say something happens to Penix, or let's just say he he doesn't live up to to what the Washington coaching staff hopes from him. If Dylan Morris gets a shot, I, I you know, I, I wouldn't bank on him being a lot better than what we saw throughout the the Jimmy Lake era and you know that through the the transition period up up in Seattle. But I, I do think that it is very possible we see a much better version of Dylan Morris with Kalen DeBoer at the helm. You know, an, an offensive minded coach who has who has fielded very good offenses in the in the recent history. Yeah, we haven't seen him be a head coach in the Pac-12 yet. He's only been a head coach for two seasons at Fresno State, really one and a half because one of them was 2020. But I think we can still confidently say that offensively he's going to be better than what they had from a staff perspective in, in 2021. I think that's a valid point. 
But that's just something that, that's that's noteworthy to follow here. Like the news for the Washington quarterback room is not done because that's you know what what the reports have been right now. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, August twenty fourth. But in a couple weeks, maybe Sam Heward leapfrogs Dylan Morris. And I think that could be noteworthy because history would tell you that Penix is not going to be able to play in every game. And depending on which game that is, you might have, you know, a, a winnable opponent on the schedule and you need Dylan Morris or Sam Heward to be ready to step in and, and play at at least a solid level uh, compared to what uh, Washington got from the quarterback position in the offense last year uh, to win some more games. Let's shift gears now and move to uh, a fascinating, what will be a fascinating discussion. Because I, I have some questions, Carter. I have, I have many questions. So there's two different ranking lists that, that ESPN has, has put out now for the Pac-12. One of them is the FPI, the Football Power Index, which I believe is a purely computer-generated number. And it has ranked the Pac-12 teams in order. And then there's the Pac-12 power rankings from a couple of writers, uh, Kyle Bonagura and Paolo Ugetti, uh put together a piece. They also talked about uh, some of the must-see games in, in the Pac-12 this year in a preseason all-Pac-12 team. It's actually a pretty uh, solid preview. But I want to start with the power rankings that came from the writers. And we're talking about Washington. I'm sure Husky fans are not thrilled about where they are in that particular list. But um, let, let, let's go through. I don't think there's going to be a lot of questions at the top. You got Utah number one. I assume no argument there. You got Oregon number two. Again, I think that's right. Some people might put USC there, but I think roster-wise, Oregon's deeper than the Trojans at this point in time. They've got USC three and UCLA four. I'd switch those because I I just I tend to lean towards continuity more than a new situation. I think USC can be an eight, nine, ten win team this year. And UCLA with their schedule certainly can. I've talked about that here on the show, that their schedule, because Michigan backed out, they're playing three teams that they're probably going to destroy. Like They should be at nine or ten wins this year, um, at least nine, if not ten. But I also like their team. They've brought in a very highly rated transfer portal class. So I'd put UCLA above USC there. Um, let, let's just, your, your thoughts on the top four there. They've got Utah, Oregon, USC, UCLA. What do you think? I really don't mind this top four. I, I think, you know, a lot of the the Pac-12 prognostications that have come out in the last couple of months throughout the summer um, have a very similar, at, at least top three. I think that fourth spot still remains somewhat up for grabs as far as teams looking to make that leap. Um, as I'm sure we're going to talk about here in just a moment, that, that five through eight group, I think as many as three teams uh, out of UCLA, Oregon State, Washington State, Cal, and Washington, as many as three of those, uh, it could realistically make that jump into the top four in the conference. UCLA is is probably the safest pick just because of, for the reasons you mentioned, and, and a lot of the talent that they bring back, Chip Kelly, obviously, in, in somewhat of another make-or-break year down in Los Angeles. Um, I, I'm okay with this top four. And, and the order as well. I think Utah's the clear should yeah. be the second best team in the conference, if, if not number one. Uh, and, and USC, I, I think, you know, even though it's going to take a while for that rebuild to, uh, to reach its peak and, you know, tap into some of its potential, the fact that they brought in such a, an impressive transfer class and the fact that they have Lincoln Riley as their head coach, they shouldn't finish any lower than third or fourth in the Pac-12 this year. 
All right, so not uh, not too much disagreement there. Then then we get into very interesting territory. The Riders have got Oregon State at five, which I kind of like because I'm pretty high on the Beavs this year. I think they're going eight and four, like like we talked about going through their schedule. Um, and may I, I apologize if I'm getting Oregon State's fans' hopes up too high, but. I, I really think they could, if Trent Bray can do a good job as defense coordinator and they can just be better, don't be great, but just be better defensively, then I think you can get to eight wins there. I like Oregon State at five. Here's where the disagreements start. Cal at number six. No, I, 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 I got nothing as to how you look at that Bears team from last year. I know they finished at five and seven, but man, they were kind of beaten up on lower competition late in the year, you know, teams that that didn't have as much to play for and whatnot. And to their credit, they won games. But, you know, one of those wins was against a four and eight USC team that had basically thrown in the towel. Right. And it was in Berkeley. Cal at six. I think that's way too high for the Bears. So there, as I mentioned, are a couple of teams, I think, this year that are ready to make a leap forward. And the only way that works is if there are teams that take a step back. If teams like Oregon State and Washington State are going to make that leap and, and jump into the top half of the conference, teams like Cal, Washington, Stanford, you know, I, I think are the ones that are on the receiving end of that. There's no reason, in, in my opinion, that Cal should be in the top half of the conference at, yeah. at the end of the year. Um, if, if I was ranking this and I haven't done this. So this is just, you know, kind of off the cuff. I'd probably have Cal somewhere in the eight or nine range, not one of the worst teams in the conference, but there's nothing that makes me really excited about them. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the golden bears, you know, they were, they were a solid team last year. They weren't great. As you mentioned, they went five and seven. That's not a great record, but you know, a middle of the road team in this conference I don't think that they got any better this offseason, losing, you know, a, a lot of talent and experience at the top of their depth chart. Chase Garbers, I mean, this, you know, some of their defensive guys who have been there for a while are, are gone. Um, there's a lot to replace. And I just don't know that Cal has recruited at a level and, and developed talent at a level to overcome that. So I, I see Cal taking a bit of a slide this year and, and certainly not finishing sixth. Yeah, and I, I like what you said. There's nothing about Cal that excites me. I, I know the defense is going to be at the very least solid, if not above average, maybe even near the top of the conference. But the offense, which has not reloaded with a new offensive coordinator, and I think is actually downgraded at quarterback from Chase Garbers to to Jack Plummer, the Purdue transfer, who did beat Oregon State last year in Purdue. But as we talked about, that was with a defense coordinator who later got fired and Jack Plummer later got benched for the Boilermakers in 2021. The interesting thing here is the FPI's got Cal at ninth in, in the conference. I think that's a lot closer, like you said, to where to where they should actually be. Uh, but let's go back to the power rankings here. Again, this is coming from uh, ESPN writers. They've got Washington State at seven, Washington eight, Stanford nine, ASU 10, Colorado 11, Arizona 12. Uh, I, You know, one of my biggest beefs here with with that particular list and having Cal at six is that you've got them above Washington State and a lot of people might say Washington should be above them I think Stanford should be higher than ninth on on this list those are two teams that I would move up uh especially Washington State who who I do like more than Stanford this year um but I, I think Washington State is a team that you could very reasonably 
put in that number five slot where Oregon State is, I think those two teams are pretty comparable. I'm with you there. I, I think that five and six, uh, you know, rounding out the top half of the conference, Oregon State and Washington State will be right there. I don't know which of those teams is going to finish higher than the other. I think will uh, determine, uh, you know, I, I think that will serve as the game that separates them. Um, but two teams that are that are looking to take a leap um, and that I think have the talent returning to do it and, and have very good coaching staffs in place. Uh, those two teams, uh, or Oregon State and Washington State, I think round out that top half there. After that, I think I'm a little higher on Washington than you are and a little lower on Stanford than you are. I like Stanford at nine here. Uh, Washington at eight, I'd be comfortable moving them up to seven, um, potentially as high as six, maybe not quite that high if, if Oregon State and Washington State live up to the expectations I have for them. Uh, but going down to the bottom, I think Colorado, Arizona at 11, 12 makes a lot of sense. But I do think that Arizona has the potential to su- surprise some people. They're not going to win five or six games, but they're probably not going to win one again. Arizona played really hard for Jed Fish last year. They've recruited really well. And, and so, you know, if, if some guys step in as true freshmen and, and make an impact right away, uh, that gives them a boost. I think Arizona they, wins. Uh, what, two what, or three one thing games on it, one thing least. on Arizona, too. They've had a sneaky solid year in the transfer portal. Yeah. It's it's nothing mind-blowing or, you know, culture-changing, but you look at the guys they're bringing in, you're like, okay, so that guy, that guy, that guy, probably going to make an impact, and those are, you know, solid, proven power five players. Arizona's over-under is two and a half, and I've I've got them just over that Carter at three. I do not think they're number 12 here. Yeah, I I, I agree with with three wins to to push them ahead of Colorado, which— Last year, the offense was one of the worst in college football. I, I don't really think that they did anything to improve there. In fact, they lost some of their best players to the transfer portal. They did bring um, in a new offensive coordinator that they're hoping will be able to make the change. But at the end of the day, an OC has got to be really good if he's going to overcome personnel shortages. Yep. You know, losing your top receiver to to USC, that hurts. Brendan Lewis was certainly not spectacular at quarterback last year. Uh, and I think he's the favorite to win that job again this year, if, if I'm so not mistaken. It's between him and JT Shroud. I think that's yeah. the next, uh, you know, most pressing quarterback battle in the conference is which of those two guys is, is going to end up getting the nod. Because Carl Durrell has said he expects JT Shroud to compete for that starting quarterback job, and they have not named a starter yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to remember, too, Oregon State went to Boulder last year. I was there, and, you know, that was my first trip out to Colorado. Loved it out there, by the way. Just a, a side note. Um, but that was the game that got Oregon State's former defensive coordinator, Tim Tibisar fired because Colorado scoring 30 points on you in, in a game last year should not yeah. happen. That was, that was the final nail in the coffin for, for coach Tibisar. Uh, and so I think that's telling, you know, Colorado scoring 30 points, getting a, a coach fired, uh, should tell you all you need to know about where Colorado's offense was at last year. I don't see it being any better. So I think Colorado, uh, could potentially finish 12th in the Pac-12 this year. Arizona State is one that, you know, I, I'm sure you want to talk about here too. Arizona State's the wild card for me in the Pac-12 this year. I think talent-wise, Arizona State could finish in the top half of the conference. But if the bottom really falls out, and I think that's what the ESPN writers are are kind of projecting here with with picking the Sun, Devil, the Sun Devils at 10th, they could be a, a bottom three or four team in this conference this year. Yes. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think you would be 
going too far out there to to project that 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 does happen. Quick note on Colorado, by the way, I heard from someone recently that they treat the media people very well, and that they the do. spread of food they have was delicious. Incredible. It was like that, a so. Man, I'm was it barbecue? Because I heard barbecue was the play. Yeah, so it was like a three course or or maybe even like a four course thing that they had going on. So there was a pregame snack, and then there was like the in game meal, um, and then they had you know like dessert options, and then there was a post game snack as well. So this thing like it came out in waves. Mm. Dinner there was, I mean, probably five or six different options. I think salad, some barbecue mac, uh, you know, baked macaroni. Um, mm. shoot, we're talking like cinnamon rolls, I, I believe, or mm. cookies, you know, some sort of dessert option there too. Give me that. It was easily the, the best meetings that I've seen. And I've been all over the PAC 12 covering Oregon state the last five years now. Mm. Mm. All right. So, uh, shout out to Colorado, Colorado on that, but I'll, I'll end today, today's show with this thought on ASU. I could see him going seven and five. I could see them going two and ten because if they if they throw in a bad loss, right? They go play at Oklahoma State. I don't see it. But if they they play NAU and I think the first Pac-12 game of the year a week from when this episode is dropping September first, they should be they should be fine against and it, they better be fine against NAU. Um, don't pull in Arizona. Just please 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 don't do it. The conference can't take another another game like that. We had too many FCS losses last year to do it again. So. They've got the first game, but then they're going to lose to Oklahoma State, and then they play, I believe, Eastern Michigan for their third game. If they lose that one, you could be showing Herb Edwards the door. Yeah. And then we saw with USC last year, they fire Clay Helton, and you're just you can win one or two games that, but it's just not a good vibe around the program, and everyone's just looking ahead to next year and what's going to happen next. So I think that's why ASU is down here at 10. I think they have the potential to be at six in these power rankings, but I think they're at number 10, both because they lost an incredible number of players to the transfer portal. They also brought in a lot. That's an important thing to note, but they certainly lost more than they gained from a talent perspective, including Jaden Daniels, who I think is a little better than Emory Jones, frankly, at the quarterback position. But their FPI power ranking is sixth, right? One, two, three, four. Yeah, they're sixth just behind Washington. It, it's it's such a wild card. I could see him going seven and five. I could see him going two and 10. And I don't have a single team in here that has that big of a range. I think Washington at their at their lowest, my prediction for them, I don't think they can go lower than, than four and eight. I think their ceiling is six and six, right? Other teams like Utah, I can't see them winning fewer than than nine games. I can't see Oregon winning fewer than eight. I can't see USC winning fewer than seven or eight, right? Like ASU has the biggest range of any of these teams. And I would not have Arizona last. I, I really would not. I like their off season more than Colorado's. And I would not be shocked if, if Arizona at the end of the year looks up and goes, we had a better season than ASU. I, I, I think, I think that's, I think it's possible. I don't think it's likely but it is not the last thing in the world that would happen. That's that, that's 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 all that's all I'd say. That could be the hottest take of the day, but I, I don't think you know if Arizona State really bottoms out, its floor is probably lower than Arizona's ceiling is high. So, 
Pro- yeah, it's, probably it's here. Here's the difference that that will work in Arizona's favor if that comes to pass, and it's something you alluded to. Those guys in that locker room last year, they were playing hard for Jed Fish. Yeah. And it was a big deal that they finally got that win against Cal, no matter what the circumstances were. Those guys were playing hard. They were competitive in a number of games. They were not getting blown out every single week. If they can get a couple of those close games to go their way, I think it'd be huge for their locker room. And then you would just have a locker room gap, right? You'd have Arizona over here with guys feeling good and we're building something versus ASU coming down and, and just not having good vibes throughout the throughout the team. But can't wait for it to get started. We'll continue to bring him on. Carter Baines, senior editor and writer at BeaverBlitz.com. Good to talk to you, my man, as always. Thanks for having me. You're also rocking that tank top, showing off the big muscles. Oh yeah. I can't I can't I can't do that. I don't have there are no muscles here. I don't I don't touch weights. I hit the driving range <laughs> instead. <laughs> Gotta stay cool up here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah, it's a little <laughs> hot up there, but I appreciate everyone listening. See you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Hey Prime members, you can listen to this locked on podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Thank you.